Hello everyone, this is Maria Lipman in our Pona's Eurasia podcast featuring a series of discussions about Russia and Eurasia, about the region's politics and about other Russian Eurasia related topics. In December, Russian courts ruled that the Memorial Society, Russia's most prominent civic organization, must be liquidated. The memorial leaders said that they would appeal this ruling and until the higher courts have examined their appeal, maybe for a couple months, the organization will continue to operate. But given the increasingly repressive atmosphere of the past year, the memorial is most likely doomed. Higher courts are almost sure to reaffirm the December rulings. In fact, we're talking about two organizations, the International Memorial, whose mission of over three decades has been the research of the crimes of Stalinism and the commemoration of the victims, and the Memorial Human Rights Center, engaged in documenting human rights violations in today's Russia. My guests today are two academic scholars, historian Benjamin Nadens of the University of Pennsylvania and political scientist Kelly Smith of the Georgetown University. Both scholars have a long history of working in memorial archives and have long-time professional and friendly relationships with memorial founders and staffers. Hello, Kelly. Hello, Dan. Thank you for joining. Yeah, thank you for, thank you for joining me. Um, Kelly, my first question is to you. Back in 1996, you published a book titled Remembering Stalin's Victims, Popular Memory and the End of the USSR. And in that book, you tell the story of how the Memorial Society came about. Would you please say a few words about the origins of Memorial, who founded it, where the idea came from, and how it was implemented? Sure. Thank you for mentioning this book, which now seems like a lifetime ago. It's actually based on research that I did for my dissertation in the field in Moscow and provincial cities in Russia in 1991. But even at that time, Memorial was already a pretty solid organization. It had been conceived in 1987, which was very early in the perestroika period when free speech was not totally a thing yet. And when such civil society organizations that were trying to emerge were known as the neformali, the informals, because they were not allowed to register, which meant they couldn't have bank accounts and exist as like official legal persons. I mentioned that because I think we're going to see today how things have come full circle back to that time period. But in terms of how it started, a young fellow named Yuri Samadurov had a grandmother who had been a victim of Stalin's repression. And at a discussion forum about Peter Stryka, he raised the ideal of creating a monument to the victims of Stalin's repressions. And this, I think, was in retrospect kind of a really smart wedge issue because Khrushchev himself back during the thaw had said, oh, we should have a monument to the victims of Stalin's repressions, but it never happened. So by raising this, it's something that they could point to a certain political leader and point of time when the idea had been, you know, sort of endorsed from on high. But the idea quickly grew. I think the people that came together around it, they knew that they didn't just want a statue, right? They wanted to know more about history. They wanted to educate people. They wanted to help survivors. They wanted to commemorate the past. And so from the very beginning, Memorial called itself a historical enlightenment society. And their activities were very wide. 
and stretch to include dealing with human rights abuses in the present day. Right. Would you please remind us of the role played by academician Sakharov in the foundation of the Memorial Society? Yes, absolutely. So one of Memorial's tactics to try and get into the press so people would learn about their initiative and to try to become a more formal organization was to recruit powerful allies. And they did this in a very democratic way. They were already trying to collect signatures on the street and they started asking people like, sort of like, what would your top favorite people be to be, you know, part of Memorial? And people would name, you know, Yevgeny Yevtushenko the poet or Yeltsin and Sakharov and so forth. So once they collected these nominations, they invited these sort of VIPs to join them. And Sakharov became very involved with the cause and was really instrumental in helping them overcome obstacles because authorities didn't want to register Memorial. And in fact, uh, famously at Sakharov's funeral, he died in December of 1989, Gorbachev asked his widow, what could he do for her? And her answer was register Memorial. So he was a big ally. He didn't live to see Memorial registered as an organization. Right. Dean, yeah, first, I would like to say that if you want to add anything on the origins, please, uh, you're very welcome. But you also have a book that is not published yet, right? Yes. It's a book about the Soviet dissidents called to the success of our hopeless cause, a phrase very common among the Soviet dissidents. It is to be published by Princeton University Press is it this year, 2022? Uh, more likely 2023. Right. Okay. So you probably worked in the memorial archives for your research for this book and maybe um, also for your earlier works. So how would you describe the memorial as a source of historical materials? What have they been able to build over the years and what is your personal experience of using their materials? Sure. First, if I could just add a footnote to what Kelly said, and her book is really still the very best thing that's been written on the origins of memorial. The fact that their initial challenge was to be registered by the state as a legal entity, I think, is extremely telling. It's not as if there weren't citizens groups, things that looked like voluntary societies in the Soviet period, especially the late Soviet period. But the truth about the public sphere in the Soviet Union is that it was largely state-directed and that there was a tremendous amount of mimicking of voluntary associations, but pretty much without exception, those associations were either carefully watched over by the Communist Party or initiated by the Communist Party to mimic the NGOs in Western countries. And, and this is a tradition that goes all the way back to late Imperial Russia uh, with the creation of trade unions by the czarist police to sort of pull the wool out from under the incipient uh, working class movement. So the fact that Memorial was able to break through that facade and establish a genuinely grassroots organization is, I think, tremendously significant for what it stands for in Russian history. And of course, the dismantling of Memorial means something very much larger, which is the assault on genuine grassroots NGOs. But now to your question about what Memorial has done by way of gathering historical materials. Certainly for the topic of my book that's going to come out next year, Memorial is the most important archive in the world. 
And that's simply because the founders of Memorial were either themselves dissidents or were connected with the dissident movement. And that means that they fundamentally had the trust of other dissidents, their relatives, their survivors. And so when it came time to gathering the personal collections of people who were active in the movement, and it was essentially a civil rights movement, uh, Soviet style, when it came time to gathering those materials, Memorial was the best option for those folks or their, as I said, their descendants or their survivors. So in the Memorial Archive is a, a unique collection of mem unpublished memoirs, diaries, letters. When someone's apartment was searched, Soviet law required that the KGB leave behind an inventory of what had been taken. And for historians, this is an absolute goldmine. It's like, it's like telling us what people were reading. It's an inventory of people's personal libraries, the books, the samizdat, the tamizdat, things that were published abroad that had been smuggled out of the Soviet Union, handwritten or typewritten manuscripts. It's, it's really a goldmine. But the, the archive goes well beyond the history of the dissident movement. In fact, its main goal since its founding has been to create a center of documentation for, for and of the victims of Stalinism. And more than any other organization in the world, except perhaps the KGB itself, whose archive in Moscow is unfortunately not accessible to researchers, uh, Russian or foreign, Memorial has done more than any other organization literally to gather, codify, and organize the names of people who were killed by the Soviet state in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. And it's not just a list of names, it's also a list of cases. So the work of coming to terms with what happened in the Stalinist era, first on a factual basis, literally just what happened, who, what, where, when, how, and why, and once that work is done, or as that work gets to be done, one, one can start asking interpretive questions like how it was possible and who the drivers of the various waves of mass terror were and for what purpose. All of that fundamental work has been concentrated in Memorial. Right. It seems that on top of this gigantic material and databases on the victims of Stalin's terror, Memorial also has data on those who suffered at the hands of Nazi Germany. Yes. Another one of their major projects has been to document as fully as possible the Nazi practice of enslaving members of the Soviet population, in many cases deporting them to Germany to force them to work in uh, German factories. These were the so-called Ostarbeiter, the workers extracted from the East. All of this was, of course, part of the Nazi plan to create a racial hierarchy in this supposedly thousand-year German Reich in which uh, the Slavic populations would serve as slave labor for German colonial projects in the Eastern half of Europe, extending well into the Soviet Union. And here too, Memorial has done pioneering work in identifying who was enslaved, who was deported, the fate of those people, some of whom returned, some of whom died during the war, were essentially worked to death, and others of whom remained as displaced persons after 1945. Kelly, so of course, if you want to add yourself, of course, a scholar and also a scholar who worked in the archives, if you want to add to that, of course, you're very welcome. But also, I would like you to talk a bit about the Memorial's civic mission. 
It's commemorative work, it's projects that actually target the general public. Absolutely. Um, in fact, we could probably do a whole podcast just about their projects because they've become such a professional organization and having worked for over 30 years, you know, the list of what they've done is really huge. But I'll just say, in addition to collecting archives, building a library, creating this database that Ben just referenced, you're right, there is a very civic and what we call in the West, I guess, an outreach component to Memorial's work. So in one way, this is very closely with the historical research that they do and facilitate, and that is that they are constantly running conferences, doing exhibits, exhibits in conjunction with Western partners, with local museums, a real variety there. But they also have tried very hard to attract a new generation to studying history and learning about history in a way that's pretty different from what you would ordinarily get in a Russian high school. And this is the project contest that until this this year, 2022, they've just announced that they're not going to be able to hold it anymore uh, because of the liquidation, where they've asked students to do projects of local, regional, or family history to consider using documents that are in their family's possessions or local archives or oral histories, and to explore some aspect of Russia's history in a way that's meaningful and personal to them. So it's very different from the more textbook-centric education they get in the classroom. And then the students who participate submit these essays to a juried competition. The winners are invited to Moscow. They publish the best ones in an anthology every year. And for kids from the provinces, this can be a life-changing event to have your you know, scholarly efforts rewarded to be part of something national. I think it's inspired a number of them to aim high in applying to university, to consider being historians, and to just become more aware of, I'd say, a, a well-rounded version of Russian 20th century history. And then I'll add, Masha, just one more thing is that they also do a lot of activities around commemoration. So local memorial groups have ceremonies, they construct monuments, and there is a national effort. It's become a tradition for the last decade or so called the Return of the Names, where on the eve of the holiday dedicated to remembering victims of repression, a memorial gathers people at the stone from the Salovki, the first Soviet concentration camp that they placed back during Perestroika across from the Lubyanka. People come there, they get a slip of paper, they read the names of people from Memorial's database. And it's a way, because you see usually a huge line of people waiting to do this, to kind of capture both the individuality of people suffering, but also the sense that this was an enormous phenomenon that affected, you know, so many people. Indeed, Kelly, you mentioned uh, local organizations, local branches of Memorial. Could you please give us an idea of the scope of that? Sure. So I will say that when Memorial first tried to hold a founding conference back in 1989, they already had 109 regional local organizations that wanted to take part, that registered for this conference. When I was studying it in 1991, I think the number had grown to over 200. I don't know what the current count is in terms of active organization. It's certainly much smaller than that. I think there are about 70 branches in Russia today. Thanks, Ben. 
And I would say that they have become diverse. You know, they have different specialties, they have different interests. So they're united by the overall topic, but they tend to, you know, specialize in what interests their organizers or their members. So in Perm, for instance, they have a very active youth program and they do expeditions where they go out and try and research the sites of different camp places in the region that they're from. Other places work more on creating memory books or until recently helping survivors. There's not so many survivors left anymore. Since you mentioned public outreach, how successful is this operation? And I would encourage both of you to share your knowledge about the Russian public perception of the memorial operation and how has it changed over time since the foundation of memorial and why? Ben, maybe you'd start. Kelly, please, I want you to join in too. Sure. I mean, Masha, as you know, measuring public resonance or reception is very difficult to do. We have to ask ourselves, what, what would the measure of success be? Would it be donations to Memorial? Would it be the proliferation in the number of member branches across the Russian Federation? As Kelly mentioned, the, the initial number of local affiliates was much higher than it is now. On the other hand, those roughly 70 local affiliates are fully-fledged organizations, so they're, they're far more organized. And I think if, if you leave out the assault by the Kremlin, they're much more enduring than the initial startup groups were. I think, you know, we have to come to terms with a basic fact, which is that most of the news that Memorial delivers to the consumers of its news, and it is, as Kelly said, an educational or, or enlightenment organization, most of that news is pretty grim. You know, it's not the kind of thing that people necessarily want to hear. They don't want to necessarily be reminded that the Soviet state murdered several million innocent Soviet citizens. They don't necessarily want to be reminded about the slave labor that the Nazis extracted, even though that puts the, the Soviet population in the position of, of victims. It's a very gruesome story. It's, it's not happy news. And we know from other countries' experience that news that is not celebratory can be difficult to digest, and a lot of people react to it by turning it off or seeking to suppress it. What I can tell you that I think is probably more useful than anything I could say from my own standpoint is that the, the, the late great guiding light of Memorial, Arseniy Raginsky, who led it for several decades, towards the end of his life, as, as you both know, was the subject of a documentary film called The Right to Memory. And Raginsky expressed the opinion with his typically candid manner that Memorial's greatest failure was its failure to win over public opinion in Russia. They had plenty of recognition from survivors or descendants of survivors and from people abroad who supported its mission, but he feared that the organization had so far failed in its mission to have a really transformative effect on Russian public opinion. Kelly, what would you say to that? Do you agree with this assessment? Well, I definitely agree, you know, with, with Ben's sort of final assessment there. I think that, again, Riginsky is an extremely honest and frank person. And I agree that in some ways, Memorial is probably best known among the Western scholar community who really values its work. But that said, I think that 
the ability to reach the survivors, the descendants of survivors is not a finished task. And probably noted that when this liquidation process started, this most recent attack, Memorial posted on Facebook a list of what can you do to help Memorial because they were just besieged with phone calls and emails. They couldn't answer them all. And among the first items on that list was go to our database and look up your family name and see how many people in our database share it. Maybe you'll find somebody that you recognize. And I think this is really a challenge to the younger, you know, tech savvy generation that's more removed from oral history and stories about their family to kind of challenge them to start off on a genealogical quest of their own. So I think that that possibility is still there and it's really meaningful. If we think of how large potentially the community of survivors of violence in the 20th century in Russia is, it's, it's huge. So if that's the audience, I definitely still hold out some hope. But I agree that success is very difficult to measure. I would say that the one area where I think Memorial has been hugely successful and really is the strength of grassroots groups is in reputation. People trust Memorial's word. They respect them, even if they are not up to date on their latest projects. You know, they just have this stellar reputation. That's partly why so many people have sprung to their defense. And it may also be partly why the state is attacking them. Yeah, and this is going to the next topic I would like to raise with you. Why? What is the reason for the current assault? Memorial has been under pressure for about 10 years now, and there are indeed constituencies in Russia that describe themselves as Stalinist, especially among the Communist Party functionaries and sympathizers. But Putin or his close associates have never sided with them. In fact, back in 2007, Putin visited the site of mass executions of the 1930s in Butova, in the outskirts of Moscow, and he appeared to be, from what he said there, uh, he appeared to be shaken by the scope of the tragedy. And as recently as 2014, he initiated the erection of a memorial in downtown Moscow commemorating the victims of Stalin's repressions. Arseniy Raginsky, whom Ben already mentioned, had been invited to the Kremlin to discuss the location and the design of the future memorial, and it was indeed erected in Moscow, and Putin attended the inauguration. So if the Kremlin and Putin personally seem to be concerned about commemorating the victims, what is wrong with memorial from the Kremlin's point of view? And why has the Kremlin assaulted it and actually wants to liquidate it now? Then maybe you'd start. Sure. Well, just for some context, as you mentioned, there's been a kind of low-level siege against Memorial going back more than a decade. And Memorial is not the only non-governmental organization to be on the receiving end of that siege from the state, from the Kremlin. So what is happening right now is not an isolated case. It's part of a much broader trend. You're absolutely right to bring up the complex nature of Putin's relationship to Soviet history and Russian history. I think there's a lot of oversimplification and frankly demonizing of Putin and the Kremlin 
in the Western media, and we're not going to really be able to make sense of what's going on there if we're operating with a cardboard cutout version of the Russian leadership. I think, for me, the essential problem behind all of this is that there is something about the Russian tradition of state power that makes independent sources of authority, and I don't mean of, of political power, but just of moral or intellectual authority. There is something that makes independent sources of authority in Russian society suspect to those in positions of ultimate power. There is just a kind of difficulty bordering on inability to live with truly independent sources of opinion. And this is a rather pessimistic view, but I think Putin's Kremlin and certain constituencies that he is connected with simply cannot abide the way Memorial links repressions under Stalin to the threat or reality of human rights violations in Russia today. There is an urge for total or near total control over the narrative of the past, not to simply falsify it in the, in the crude manner that the Soviet regime did, and for the Soviet regime, history was the ultimate source of legitimacy. So it was very important that history conform to what the Communist Party needed it to say. Putin's a complex guy. He, he knows that unspeakable crimes were committed under Stalin. But he also knows that he wants a patriotic, loyal, and more or less obedient Russian population, and that he's not going to get that if the full extent of Stalin's terror and the fact that the terror was performed by the state itself, he's not going to get those results if that information becomes very widespread or those impressions become very widespread. For reasons that you know, you, you both know very well, the history of the Second World War is absolutely crucial to Russian historical consciousness, both at the state and popular level, even today, more than 75 years later. And nobody can change the fact that the leader of the, the Soviet cause in that war, the person who presided over, you know, what may be the greatest triumph over adversity story of modern history was Joseph Stalin. The same person who more than anybody else was the architect of mass terror and mass murder uh, against the Soviet population. So this is a conundrum. What do you do with the history in which your shining hour, the most glorious moment of modern Russian history, the defeat of Nazi Germany, of, of the closest thing to absolute evil that we've encountered, what do you do when that story is inextricably bound up with the story of terror against innocent Soviet civilians? That's a dilemma, and it's a hot potato, and the Kremlin is trying to manage that to its own advantage and for the purposes of, of patriotic feeling. And Memorial at some point became an inconvenient and then in the perception of Putin and others, an indigestible factor. And I think that's the, the background story behind this gradual assault on what Memorial does. If, if you're asking about the timing, why has this low level siege now suddenly entered this flare up era in which it appears that at least part and maybe all of Memorial will be liquidated. Very hard to say, but I can't help but wonder whether part of the timing has to do with what's going on between Russia and Ukraine. And I think, you know, Putin is presiding over a very, very delicate 
series of ultimatums to the West, including the threat of a full-scale or nearly full-scale invasion of Eastern Ukraine. And it has occurred to me, and not only to me, that he may have decided that he needs to silence his most vocal and most internationally connected potential domestic critics. And since Memorial is not just a, an organization devoted to unearthing and disseminating historical truth about Russia's 20th century, but it is also a human rights organization monitoring Russia's human rights record now in the present, Putin may have decided that Memorial needed to be silenced. Kelly, anything you, you'd like to add to that? And also, as you speak about that, if you want to add something, I also would like you to, to talk about what is the formal pretext? How is it technically that the state is attacking Memorial now? It is not being attacked for the inappropriate vision of the past. This is not the cause for liquidation. What is? Yeah, well, Ben has covered a lot of ground already, so I'll just speak briefly to the, the earlier question, which is, you know, why, why go after Memorial? Obviously, it wasn't going to go unnoticed. It was going to cause a fuss in Russia and in the West. And, you know, I think Ben has really touched on some key aspects. For me, I think the most key ones probably are this control over the narrative. So Putin, of course, is this complex person, and I think it's quite possible for someone to, you know, dislike the repressive policies carried out under Soviet rule, especially in Putin's case, the persecution of the Orthodox Church, and at the same time, admire Stalin as, you know, the leader of World War II victory. So I think for Putin, it has to do, first of all, about the proportions. That is, which of these things is bigger, you know, the memory of victory or the memory of horror? And obviously, you know, I think he falls in this conservative camp that would like to diminish the negative parts of national history. And certainly we're familiar with that in the U.S. with the fight uh, now over the 1619 project. You know, can one think of the founding of the United States without having to think about slavery? It's a really hotly contested issue here as well. The second thing has to do with the lessons and, you know, Ben mentioned, you know, like, if you're really thinking all the time about the horrors carried out by the Soviet state, then how is that going to affect you today? And I think that for the founders of Memorial, they really saw these repressions as state-sponsored repressions. And you can argue that the Russian state today is not the exact direct heir of the Soviet state. There's many things that are different about it. The centralized and increasingly repressive state is a common feature. And so I don't think Putin is a Stalinist, but I do think that he's a statist. And so to have people challenge the notion of a strong central state being good, being the best form of government, that's, that's a problem for him. And I'll just add here that when he went to the opening for this monument that he had endorsed in Moscow, he quoted some words from Natalia Solzhenitsyna, the widow of the author of the Gulag Archipelago. And her words had already become part of the fundraising campaign for this monument. And she said, you know, that the goal was to know, not to forget, to condemn, and to forgive. 
And so I think for Putin, he wants that formula. If people should know some amount of facts about this history, they should say it was bad, but they should also forgive. And you know, we could have an ethical debate about who gets to forgive. I don't think you can forgive for other people. And I think that you could have chosen other verbs here. You could have said to analyze, to research, to understand, to learn from, right? But, but that's not the formula he likes. I think the formula he likes is a way to shut the door on this topic. And I think, sadly, this monument for him was kind of a way to say, hey, this is what you guys wanted. I've done it. Like, we're done. We're, this is over. We don't need this grassroots movement anymore. Right. And because you mentioned this concept, Memorial's concept of state-sponsored repressions, the concept, of course, is unacceptable to the Kremlin. And Ben also spoke to this effect about state power and how Putin would not admit state power to be undermined. I would like to quote Arseniy Raginsky, who, as always, was so succinct and so precise on this issue. That's what, he, uh, what, that's what he said at some point. Everyone sympathizes with the victims of terror. City mayors have pity for them, as well as governors. President Putin also sympathizes with innocent victims, and so do people in the street. But whose terror is it? Who is the perpetrator? This is not what common people, governors, or presidents would think about. Memorial's answer is, this was the state's terror against the people. And I agree with both of you that this is a concept that Putin cannot agree with and does not want to be disseminated in the Russian public. So I have two points that I would like us to talk about in the end. So one is the question that I already asked, and that is, what is the immediate cause for the liquidation? What is the charge? It is not the inappropriate vision of the past. It is not undermining state power. What is it? Kelly, would you please say yeah. a few words? Yes, thank you. I got distracted from that question. So yes, if you, if you read the legal documents of the charge brought by the prosecutors to liquidate Memorial, the charge is about the repeated and gross violation of the rules and regulations regarding foreign agents. Probably your listeners know about the foreign agent law created back in 2012. Memorial, for most of that time, has been labeled by the state a foreign agent. And it requires not only lots of audits and financial reports, but also essentially the sort of like scarlet letter that you have to put this text on everything you publish, all of your official websites and so forth. So Memorial got in trouble a few years ago when some apparently bored or overzealous prosecutor in the North Caucasus systematically went through all of their websites, every project they'd done, every you know online website they'd created, and found a number in which that mandatory text was missing. And that became the pretext for lawsuits where Memorial received administrative punishments, so big fines which they managed to pay, and they fixed all of these mistakes. Now, the prosecutor's office has come back and said, well, you didn't act in good faith. Look, we can find more places where it's not marked. And what Memorial says to this is, we have tried to comply, but you have not specified the rules. There's no written out policy. How do you mark social media? Do you just have to mark the landing page? Do you have to mark every page? 
How do you mark a tweet? I mean, it's really kind of boggles the mind. But here I'd have to say I disagree with you, Masha, a little bit in that although the, so this formal pretext was a very legalistic administrative reason, the speech by the prosecutor in the closing hearing where the decision was made to liquidate Memorial is all about how Memorial started once with good intentions to commemorate victims, but now it's turned into an organization that falsifies the past. And here he essentially says, you know, this is an unpatriotic organization. It's trying to make people hate their own country. And who would want to do that? Obviously, only the enemies of Russia, only foreigners. And therefore, we can see that this, in fact, is like this huge foreign agent that has not mended its ways and that is definitely harmful. So legally, of course, the court should not consider that because it's not a crime to falsify the past in Russia. Well, it is some aspects about World War II, but not it's not a, a total crime. But the court is stuck. The court must find Morial guilty, and so the court does. But the speech that the prosecutor makes, I think, is much more telling about the real reasons for this politicized, you know, faked-up trial. Yeah, of course, you're right. It is just that even after that speech, the formal ruling that the memorial lawyers got from the court did not have that wording. So this is what lies beneath, and we all know this, and both of you have spoken about it. But the formal ruling is still those stupid finding faults with how memorial implements the legislation, the regulations imposed on it by the foreign agent legislation. So my final, my final question, I guess, Ben, is to you. One often hears these days from memorial sympathizers that memory cannot be liquidated and the destruction of memorial is powerless to liquidate its achievements. But in practical terms, how large is the damage done by the liquidation of memorial if it is liquidated? And what can and what cannot be preserved? This is a story that's still unfolding. And so the full extent of the damage is not visible because for one thing, both of the court rulings by the Russian Supreme Court and by the Moscow Municipal Court have not yet taken effect legally. One will do so at the end of this month and the other two weeks later in mid-February. So this is a process that is unfolding right now in real time. I think the impact will be quite real on the work that Memorial does. It was already experiencing difficulty over the past decade in forming or renewing relationships with schools, as Kelly mentioned, that essay contest with museums, because schools and museums were nervous, understandably, about signing some kind of cooperative contract with an organization that had legally been identified as a foreign agent. And many groups simply pulled away or pulled out of these agreements with Memorial already over the past several years because of that risk. If these rulings are carried out in full, many of Memorial's outreach activities will be shut down, I think fully shut down. And their ability to monitor the human rights situation in Russia, whether it's prisoners' rights or uh, attacks against sexual minorities or the situation in Chechnya, all of these activities will really literally be shut down by this order. But I think on a larger scale, because Memorial is the oldest and in some ways the most venerable 
non-governmental organization in the Russian Federation today, you know, with a history going back to the late Soviet period, as Kelly has written about, it is a bellwether for all of civil society. It is a bellwether for all the other NGOs that want to maintain some semblance of independence from the state. And everybody understands that if the government can take down Memorial, it can take down literally anybody, any organization. Any organization in Russia is more vulnerable now because of the assault on Memorial. And what do people do when they feel more vulnerable? They're more cautious. They're more careful. They don't push boundaries. They don't push envelopes. They are more obedient and they take care not to ruffle feathers in the Kremlin. So I think the ripple effects of this will be huge. As far as the collections go, work is being done now to scan and digitize as much of the archival holdings as can be done. There are major archival holdings in the Moscow and Petersburg branches, but not only there, the branches in Krasnoyarsk, Altai, and Perm also have quite significant archival holdings. And there's genuine concern about what's going to happen to those materials. The people that I speak with in and around Memorial, and it's principally the Moscow and Petersburg branches, are, for an American, their, their responses are rather surprising. They are not wringing their hands and acting as if the world is coming to an end. Their view is they will continue in one form or another to conduct their activities, whether it's under a new legal entity or in a more informal way. But their, their attitude is, this is not the end of what we do. Well, I hope they're right. And uh, the only thing that we can do, I guess, is wish them luck. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, Masha. Thank you.